2: hi i'm danny elfman
0: this is shirley manson this is debbie harry
2: this is christina blondie this is Roland Orzabal
0: from tears for fears this is Billy really Idol. this is alex ebert aka edward sharp giving the story behind the song hi this is peter chatty host of the story behind the song each month i speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Comedian Chris Gethard debuted his show, The Chris Gethard Show, on June 22, 2011. The show lasted for six seasons and went where no other talk show went. He devoted an entire episode to having his audience guess what was inside a dumpster. Another was intended to be just a sad episode. And on his show, if things started to go sideways, he'd allow it. Chris learned a lot about how to produce a weird talk show by growing up in the DIY punk scene in New Jersey. He saw plenty of ska bands. In fact, his favorite band was Less Than Jake. Today, we talked to Chris about New Jersey, his talk show, and most importantly,
0: Ska. I really like having comedians on in defense of Ska. Yeah. I think it's some of the best guests that we have on here end up being comedians. There is a, such a weird connection between Ska and
2: comedy. Definitely. In the case of Chris Gethard, he, so he's not just a like, stand-up comedian. He, he gets into all kinds of different forms of performance. So I think that that gives me an extra leg up on having an interesting perspective on ska.
0: Especially in, you know, more modern ska, there's definitely a huge performance element to it. I mean, some of the bands, you know, it's a performance element almost to their detriment. But uh, yeah, I think Chris can appreciate that.
2: He also said his favorite band when he was growing up was Less Than Jake. So, hey. There you go. And he said he was surprised to be on the podcast, a ska podcast. He was surprised? Yes, even those favorite band growing up was Less Than Jake. It's hardly surprising.
1: I never envisioned a world in which I'd be invited onto a ska-themed podcast. So <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. I mean, there's a lot to talk about with you, with ska.
1: Yeah. So let's dig <laughs> in. <laughs> sure. Yeah, let's do it. We can make it happen. Let's
2: start in the present. Um, you recently caught a ride with Capite, our friend's Capite. I think it was like from Portland to Seattle.
1: I'm just glad to see that I'm dealing with people who know how to do their research and who know how to dig deep for the <laughs> stories that matter. Yes, I did ride in a van with cat bite. This is very important, yeah. Yeah, great people, sweet kids. That's my old man in my <laughs> 40s, some nation, sweet kids. <laughs> how did you connect with them? Well, that was the awkward part for everybody. So um when I tour and do my live podcast, the person who comes on the road and does the audio engineering for the podcast is named Andrea Quinn because my podcast, we have, we do phone calls and to route that through a soundboard and get it where there's no feedback and record the phone call and me in real time with the audience and none of it feeding back. It's tricky. So I, I bring my friend Andrea and she's all set up on how to, uh, you know, the system that's kind of annoying and Andrea outside of working with me on this and my New Jersey is the world podcast. Also, um, is one of the people behind a project called left of the dial Uh and they do a podcast based out of the Philly area where they interview a lot of bands and they do live performances and they uh, have done live streams for a bunch of shows. And it's a really great project. And Andrea knew cat bite through those connections, through that sort of South Jersey, Philly punk scene. So Andrea was like, Hey, instead of renting a car, um, we could just ride with Caplight. They're my friends, and I was like, "Cool." I, I'm aware of Caplight. Like I was at Fest last year, and be, being an East Coast guy, I've seen their rise. I'm like, "Cool, that's great." And then, as I was in the airport terminal, I was like, "Weird." Andrea's usually here before me. Like Andrea's usually a stickler on time. <laughs> I get a text that's like, "So sorry to tell you this, but I woke up sick. Like I've been trying to rally and get to the airport, but like." I am, I am ill. Like they wouldn't, I don't think they'd let me on a plane. Like they wouldn't let me through security. I'm ill. Can't make it. I was like, Oh shit. Okay. Feel better. And we'll scramble and we'll figure out all the sound stuff and let me know and blah, blah, blah. So I'm thinking about my shows. How am I going to get these podcasts recorded? Um, How, you know, is Andrea okay? How are we going to coordinate this all? She's like, I think I can work with the sound guys from Jersey and this and that. It's like, man, this is it. And then it hits me. Oh, I'm also driving up the coast with a ska band I've never met. (laughs) (laughs) There's another awkward social wrinkle in the thing. So I thought about bailing. I was like, maybe I should just go get a bus ticket or rent a car or something. But then I was like, nah, Like, I'll take the ride, get to know these people. We got a lot of mutual friends and they were incredibly sweet. And I'll say we stopped in Olympia and we stopped at the Wayside, which is a restaurant run by a very, very nice guy named Kevin, vegetarian restaurant that people should go to if you're ever in Olympia, just like crushed. And he used to be in Reviver. So he had told me, hey, if you're passing through, come by, I'll give you free lunch. And I was like, hey. I am passing through. Would love to take you up on that. I'm also traveling with like an entire ska band. I was like, (laughs) all right, yeah, bring them through. And he hooked us up with food. And then I think if anything, I just kind of annoyed Catbite because one of the the guys who was not in the band but helping them on the tour was also from New Jersey. And we just talked about New Jersey the whole time. And I think like 15 minutes in, they were all like, you guys should shut the fuck up about New Jersey. But like none of them (laughs) knew me and I'm an old guy. And like over, oh, like, like I think they sometimes because I, I view myself as like a very normal, humble, uh, humble guy on my best days. Like I sometimes forget that I've done some stuff that by other people's standards it's a little weird. <laughs> a little weird. I think they were just like, I don't know if are we allowed to tell this guy to shut the fuck up about Jersey? Like he's been on TV and stuff. Like, are, can we tell him shut the fuck up? <laughs> and then I kind of realized, oh. We've been talking about New Jersey for like 90 relentless minutes. Just me and one other guy with no one else participating. I think maybe I should shut the fuck up.
2: I asked Tim from Capite. I said, anything interesting I should know about your guys' interaction with Chris for the interview? And you know, you know what he said? Didn't And he never shut the fuck up
1: about New Jersey. He said it in a very nice way, though. He's a very nice guy. <laughs> very sweet person. That band is kind folk, I would say. Across the board, just like kind, nice folks that haven't been crushed by the entertainment industry yet, and they're still <laughs> emanating like a true joy and warmth and kindness. And God bless Capite. That being said, what was said? What was the kind version?
2: Oh, just that, um, oh, uh, Chris and uh, Boz. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they, they really connected over uh, New Jersey for uh, a majority of the ride.
1: A majority of the ride. It's, it's a pretty long ride,
2: you know? He also mentioned the uh, Olympian uh, free uh, vegetarian meal, too.
1: I was happy to get them some free food because I did feel like I ruined that leg of their trip by being an annoying, weird old guy. Well, because Boz was like, it turned out that like his family's roots are in Newark and so are mine, and he's a Jersey guy. and We didn't grow up in the same area, but I actually live now where he grew up. So we were just... There was a lot to talk about, and he was a real social guy. Like me and him, really hit it off.
2: They said nothing but nice things about you. He said wonderful human being.
1: That's kind of
2: them. That's kind <laughs> of them. They were
1: very nice. I just think I think initially they were like, oh, that's cool, our friend Andrea and his friend Chris, and then we all were kind of like, and now just me in the van with these kids I don't know. That'll be fine. We're we're all we all have mutual friends, and we're all part of the same you know, mindset as, as DIY focused artists, even though we do different things. And then I think pretty quickly, I probably showed up and they were like, this guy's old, this guy's <laughs> old. That's a little weird. And then we got in the van and like within minutes, I think they were just like, Oh boy, this Jersey thing seems like it might be intense. And then by the end of the ride, I think they were like, we can't ever let that human being in the van again. Did you ever get a chance to see Bite live? I have not seen Cat Bite live. No, I've heard a ton of their stuff, um, but I haven't seen them live. But now it's nice because now, like the next time I cross paths with them, whether that's at Fest or through whatever means, I'll be able to see them from the point of, I don't know if, you know, I would say, I guess, friends. I've driven in a van with these people, but have not seen them live yet. No, but I know I've heard the stories that their shows are just like uh, tearing the roof off the goddamn place.
2: Yeah, I haven't seen them yet because I'm in California. But Adam saw them last year at Fest. Yeah, they're great.
1: Yeah, it, they were opening for Rosenstock, mm-hmm. so I was able to stop by the venue and say hi to Jeff because Jeff's a, a, an old friend of mine and someone mm-hmm. who I've like feel really, really. I, I think like many people, I think just a lot of people of the past, you know, recent handful of years. There's a lot of people who have leaned on Jeff, and I count myself among them. So I was able to stop and say hi. But then, unfortunately, the nature of both being on tour, I had to run and go do my own show. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get to see Cap, but I didn't get to see Jeff. But I saw Jeff two nights ago open for the Gaslight Anthem. So that was good.
2: Yeah, I saw that. I saw you posting about that. Yeah, that's that's awesome that uh, he's doing. Uh, is, it, is it just the one? I think there was a series of shows for Gaslight.
1: I think he said it was seven or eight. Yeah. I think eight was what Jeff said. Yeah. And I know they're doing the PNC Bank Arts Center on the 8th. And that's in Jersey. And I'm I'm bummed. I have a show in Chicago on the 8th. And I'm bummed because it's like a Gaslight Anthem show at the Jersey Shore. Like Bruce Springsteen showing up. And I kind of (laughs) want to be there to see what happens when Jeff and John have to react to just Bruce Springsteen hanging out backstage. Like I wish I was there that night to see the reaction in the moment because that's going to be funny. However, it ends. (laughs) Definitely. Um, speaking of Jersey,
2: you do a show, you just, you mentioned your show. Jersey is the world yeah. podcast, which you also do live. Um, a band called take today has been a house band of yours a few times.
1: Yeah. Take today is awesome. Great South Jersey band.
2: And, uh, I've heard that you're a particular fan of their song.
1: Ska diving. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I came to know them first cause Andrea knows them real well through the left of the dial thing again. And Andrea was like, you got to hear this band take today. You're going to like them period. And you got to hear their jawbreaker covered. They cover uh do you still hate me by jawbreaker? And it was funny. Andrea and I were on the road and she was like, listen to this. And it's that thing with covers of like, it's that real tricky line, right? Where like, sometimes a cover will be so good. It will transcend the original, but we're talking about like Johnny cash covering hurt by nine inch nails here. You know, we're yeah. talking about, yeah. uh, you know, a, a small handful, we're talking about you know, because of the night, like Bruce Springsteen going, that's Patty Smith's song now. More often than not, what you get is you go, This is either a cover that you go, it's just note for note the song. So why'd you do it? Because it's just the song I already know, or you go, I already like the original song. Why are you messing with it too much? And then some people manage to hit that sweet spot where they just put their own little twist on it where they're honoring some. And take today's cover of Jawbreaker. They really, there's a couple little things they throw in. There's like Couple moments in the song where you're like, that's a cool take on the song. And then they do a thing at the end where I just started laughing out loud. And I was like, that's fucking funny and cool. So I was very fond of them for that and then got to know them because they, they, yeah, we've uh, done a couple shows together. We actually did a, a live New Jersey's The World that was just for kids. It's like a kid themed <laughs> entertainment. And awesome. they learned, I asked Take Today if they could come back because we Joe from Take Today, just the nicest guy. And I said, is there any way like, could you learn like the Paw Patrol theme song, the PJ Masks theme song, <laughs> Spidey and his amazing friends. And then a couple songs from frozen and Encanto. And they did these punk covers where the kids in the room were allowed to just yell the name of whatever song they want at any point in the show. So I got to see take today do a sick cover of that song from frozen. Like 11 times. Cause the kids just kept asking for frozen.
2: <laughs> I don't know if you've listened to the, I think you got the tape, right? This skydiving tape uh yeah
1: i have heard it have you listened to the the, the b-side up to the top uh it's not, i i don't know off the top of my head i i know i listened through because it's up on their band camp and i've listened yeah. to a bunch of stuff on there but this song in particular i cannot recall off the top of my head i'm sorry to say
2: oh that's okay so it's a, a lean katie cover and uh our nice co-host here adam davis did the did vocals on it
0: Ooh, yeah <laughs> cool Aaron <Adam laughs> likes to pull those things out yeah well done.
2: Well done. <laughs> well done, Adam. <laughs> we all think you did a good job. I'm curious, um, your passion, obviously you're from Jersey, but I'm curious your passion for bringing Jersey culture, you know, through through your podcast, through shows, um, what is it about that that you feel like is is important to you?
1: Well, I feel really deeply connected to where I'm from. and And, you know, where I'm from is a place that gets passed over a lot and gets made fun of a lot. I think a lot of people like, you know, being a music themed podcast, there's a lot of people who they'll have a show in New York and then they'll look for a show in Philly and Jersey's just the place they have to drive through. And they drive down the New Jersey turnpike and they're like, man, this place looks gross, you know, or how many jokes have we all heard about New Jersey life?" That's kind of, kind of a punching bag and a punchline of like, Oh, Jersey sucks. So definitely put a chip on my shoulder growing up. Definitely felt like, especially trying to become an artist myself in new york you know going over across the river to do comedy always sort of felt like i'm being judged now whether that was true or that was just some angry young man stuff is debatable but definitely felt like i'm from this place that everybody makes fun of and i'm like taking the train into the big city and i gotta prove myself and i think a lot of the art that comes out of new jersey kind of shares that you know um you know, whether that's something as mainstream as like Springsteen or you look at some of the iconic underground stuff, starting with like the Bouncing Souls and Lifetime, Screaming Females, the Ergs, like even the Front Bottoms who are like, you know, notoriously very in touch with their emotions. But there's still a little bit of a chip on the shoulder of like kind of uh, you sort of feel like very connected to this place because you're kind of try- trained to be ashamed of it. And then when you're like, no, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm actually proud that morphs from shame into a little bit of this aggression that I think people view as a bad thing for New Jersey. But when you're here, I I think it feels kind of necessary. And especially as an artist, I think that's why a lot of interesting art comes out of New Jersey. Um, Because I think the people who are driven to do it feel like it's an uphill climb and you don't believe, you know, people don't believe in us as a rule. So that's how, but then, you know, you get a Titus Andronicus out of that. You get something that's like very, very weird and unique where it's like, screw it. I'm just going to own what I am and who I am and where I come from. And not only am I not going to hide it, I'm going to wear it on my sleeve and make it a part of who I am. So yeah, I I know that's kind of like a weird rambly philosophical answer, but no, I get it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the type of thing that it's like, when you're from here and you want to be an artist, it's sort of held a, a, as a deficit against you until you take ownership and turn it into an asset. And because of that cap, white has to hear me ramble about it for 90 straight <laughs> minutes in a van.
2: I'm sure they feel a similar thing being from Philly, like a Philly, there's a Philly thing too, a Philly pride slash, you know, being made fun of sort of thing.
1: And I think they have some South Jersey roots too. So they get it. They get, it, it was just hyper specific. I mean, me me and their me and their their guy in the van we were like literally i'm going like hey did you ever uh, when you were growing up remember that guy who used to take tickets in the morristown movie theater and he used to make weird noises with his mouth he's like yeah that fuck i used to do karaoke with that guy i'm like this is like hyper specific jersey nonsense that they had to put up with so god bless him god bless catbite imagine if i had to like post the thing that was like hey um seattle so sorry i have to cancel the show tonight but catbite abandoned me on the side of a highway
2: <laughs> somewhere. He's talking about jersey too much
1: yeah they got super annoyed at us talking about uh, what constitutes real italian ice versus fake italian ice and they left me on the side of a highway somewhere in the northern wilds of oregon
0: wait can you break that down for us really quick
1: what about italian ice yeah come on yeah. I mean, just, you know, what you get from the store is a good summer treat, but if you get it from, I've, re- I've this is actually something I will say I've always been aware of, but I've recently dived in deep on is like, if you get it from a place where it's like a family's actually making it, there's a place called De Cosmos. If you're ever passing through Jersey, you go to Da Cosmos, you get the real Italian ice. It's insane. It's just insane. It's got the consistency of like soft serve ice cream. It's great. It's not like this thing where you got to scrape it with a wooden stick, like some kind of animal, you know? <laughs>
2: Are you familiar at all with the the Jersey Scott ends?
1: Um, so this is one of the things I wanted to cop to, because you guys asked me to be on this podcast and I'm happy to do it. I'll say, I am aware that there's been an explosion of modern ska. Obviously, like we're talking about Catboy, uh, a um, um, I just said Catboy because my son is three and he watches PJ Masks all the time. I'm aware <laughs> of Catboy and I know uh, uh, about a lot of what's going on. And I know that Jersey has been a big part of it. Um, That being said, I can't. I'm not going to sit here and claim to be totally up on the modern ska revolution. Although I know there's like one of the big record labels that drives it. I think is Jersey based, and I know there's some new Brunswick bands that have that have really helped champion things. But yeah,
2: even historically, like um, like the from the 80s and 90s, are you familiar with some of the? I mean, obviously, Catch 22 and Streetlight Manifesto are some of the big names.
1: Catch 22. I was in high school when they were just a local band. Um and college, I was at Ruckers when they really started catching momentum and and everybody was like, whoa, and and you know, that's one of those bands that um, you know, I want to be clear too. I grew up, I could tell you my whole history with ska and I'm sure we'll get to it. And then I also was one of those people making fun of it for a while. And I've had some interesting conversations along the way that showed me the error of my ways, even before this uh this new wave of ska broke out. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, Catch-22, and that song, Dear Sergio, I've always said, I'm like, anybody who makes fun of that song is an idiot because if if you like Jersey punk and DIY, I think that was on every mixtape for years was that Dear Sergio song. So um, you're just, you're being a little silly if you mock that one because that song fucking rules.
2: <laughs> on your podcast, you had uh, Roger Appleton Jr. for the Four City Brewing.
1: Yeah, and then he was telling me, that he was part of a New Brunswick ska band that kind of set the stage for a lot of the New Brunswick punk scene that followed. Yeah. And I told my buddies that who were, you know, all about three, four years older than me and got to Rutgers in New Brunswick before. Me. And they were all like, oh shit. Yeah. That band was everywhere for a while. So
2: yeah, uh, Bigger Thomas. They were, I think, the first, first ska band from the area.
1: Uh, yeah. He was saying that he's like always. Oh, been a part of it and always been down. I only I interviewed him because he was, you know, at that point he was one of the owners of a small brewery, and we were doing like a small business spotlight on his business. And then it just descended. I'll say this too: one of the really fascinating things about growing up in New Jersey and living in New Jersey again now is you meet people like that, and they all have roots in the punk DIY scene. And and I want to be clear: I say punk as the broad umbrella because we can talk about when I grew up, the scene was not large enough to have fragmented. So you'd be seeing, going to a quote unquote punk show meant you might see punk bands, but you might see hardcore bands. You might see ska bands all on the same bill. You might see like an anti-folk guy walk out with an acoustic guitar in between those things. There weren't enough shows for it to split. Um, And there's so many people now who they're running Rogers running a brewery I interviewed another guy uh, who runs a mutiny barbecue in Asbury park, former punk guy. You talked to, I talked to journalists who cover, you know, Jersey food, they've got roots in the punk scene. So I think a lot of people who are, you know, you kind of grow up and you find your lane and I'll, you find out that a lot of people were going to shows at the same locations back in the day, whether that was skaters world and Wayne or Maxwell's and Hoboken, new Brunswick basement shows, the pipeline in Newark, like a lot of us, we're going to the same places. And then it's like, I grew up and become a comedian. You own a brewery, you run a restaurant, you're a journalist, you're this, you're that. And we somehow quickly come to find out like, oh no, like we were seeing Catch 22 and Lifetime and Midtown and Humble Beginnings and all, all these local bands and um, all these things that folded in together. And it was, it was clear, I, I've always known how much of an impression the Jersey DIY scene left on me. Just the the fact that I came up a generation of very empowered kids um, always filled me with some motivation and some pride. It's been very cool to get older and realize there's a lot of people who I'm meeting today. And they were, they're all around the same age I was, and they were all very inspired by that creative explosion as well.
2: Yeah, I think growing up, being part of DIY, DIY, punk, ska, whatever, it teaches you about community, for one thing, and it helps create community and it teaches you about an alternative path to the one that's been fed to you by the mainstream world or maybe your parents or whatever. And I think you take that with you, whether you stay in that DIY world or whether you go somewhere
1: else. Absolutely. And I think I look back and I realize the real thing, because I was a relatively good kid, I was definitely like an underachiever gotten some trouble growing up, but not much. Definitely. I think I was, my brother and I both were like, my brother's like a genius. And my parents would be like, why are you getting D's at school? And he's like, cause I just don't give a shit. I'm sorry. You know? And like um, I was not as severe. I was getting C's, you know? Um, but I think growing up that way where you're like, I know I'm a smart person. I know I'm a good person, but I do not feel motivated to participate in this school thing I have a lot of misgivings about how I'm seeing people get treated around me. I have an acute sense that things are unfair very often with the way this is built with people in authority, flexing it. And you kind of have all that stuff. And then you discover this music. And the the main thing I think it teaches you about right away is just the concept of permission is a construct. And that This idea that you have to get permission from people that you don't even necessarily respect those people or how they operate. Like teachers, I look back, I go, there's a small handful. Literally, I can think of one teacher from high school that I look at and I go, oh, she had great intentions and she helped me. Everyone else, I'm like, oh, you were just like, that was a job to you and that's fine. And some people where I'm like, oh, you were actually a negative influence. You just wanted to be a big fish in a small pond and boss people around. And I hated those people. I hated those teachers while I was in it. And I felt like I was constantly biting my tongue and shaking my head, let alone like I don't want to get into like the, you know, the the economic, you know, economic disparity and class disparity and racial disparity in North Jersey. But I also sit there, I go, there are some kids like there's some kids getting in trouble for stuff and it's hard not to notice that like they get in more trouble than the white kids from the rich part of town like just being an angry guy being like the system's bullshit why is this why are these the people i have to get permission from for everything and then my older brother takes me to my first show first live music i ever saw it was four local bands in the basement of a church in our town his friend mike d who i co-host my jersey podcast with to this day his buddy mike d just rented the church hall and booked the bands they show up they're selling t-shirts they got seven inches i'm 13 years old And I'm realizing these kids are 17 years old. These kids, like, there's bands where I'm watching where I'm like, oh, they only get to do this because one of them is old enough to have a license. The rest don't. Like, that (laughs) bassist sucks, but he has a license. That's why he's in this band, you know? And you sit there, and at 13 years old, when I already was like, "I I don't like all these people telling me the way things have to be done when I'm pretty sure the way they're doing things is, like, at best a waste wasting a lot of time and at worst kind of fucked up so you go oh you can just print your own t-shirts you can just get your own seven inches you can book your own hall you can make your own fanzine you can start your own band now yeah. i was not destined to be a musician but that was imprinted on me from the start of like you do not sit and wait for other people's permission you don't have to and anybody who wants to flex the fact that you need their permission is probably an asshole Like somebody who gets off on needing to grant permission, no thanks. Like, are we in it together or are we not? So I always looked for the people who wanted to be in it together. And with my comedy career, I think that served me so well because I was still pretty in the thick of it, of having been a guy who went to a lot of shows when I found comedy. And then I started going to New York City. And that attitude was still really, really present in my bloodstream of like, okay, like I'm not a jerk. And I'm not trying to like tear everything down, but like, okay, here's the path that maybe takes a year or can I set it up myself and have it take a month? Well, I'm going to go do that one. And it means I have to work 10 times harder. And it means I might get a crowd that's, you know, half as big, especially in the early days, but I'm doing it and I'm making it happen. And the DIY thing totally rearranges your relationship with permission. And I love that.
2: I try to. I explain this sometimes. To people just like having grown up, you know, especially coming from a Christian um, home. You know, discovering ska and punk rock and, and this world like, changed my life completely in ways I can't even explain. Just because it like knocked me off course, it gave me insight into a world I probably wouldn't have been aware of, or by the time I would have been aware of, I would have been an adult and would have been more entrenched in my ways. Getting it, getting it as a kid you know, formative years, you can, you have time to adjust before you fully form. And I think that's really important.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And you grow up hearing about punk rockers and they're supposed to be scary. You know, <laughs> you think, yeah. you think about the movies in the late eighties and early nineties would be like these people with like spiky jackets and mohawks. And I remember being so nervous. See, my brother's like, I'm taking you to a punk show. This was in like, this was like in the nineties, just before green day really broke it, you know, and like broke it through like right around when fat records was becoming a thing, you know, like uh, I was lucky enough to be young as my brother was catching on to the fact that something pretty cool was happening. And then you get in the room with all these people and you go, they are scary. But then when you start talking to them, you go, Oh, they're actually the smartest kids I've been around. (laughs) They're smart and motivated and they want to change the world for the better. And also a lot of them are troubled and have no place else to go to survive, especially back then, you know, Um, broken homes and kids falling into drugs and drinking way too early. Like that was a part of it as well, but it was everybody taking care of each other. And you sit here, you go, Oh, going to a punk show. Like in some ways back then it was about the music. And in other ways it was, this is my chance where like me and the two other kids from my town who live in fear of constantly being made fun of, we can go here and let our guard down. And here's the two kids from every other surrounding town. And we've all traveled to this VFW hall in the middle of nowhere to listen to some bands that are admittedly not great local <laughs> bands, but it's like this kid who has half his head shaved or has blue hair, which in the nineties, which is like, Oh, you just, you're just asking for jocks to beat you up. It's like, we can all get together and let our guard down. And it can be like, Oh, what, what, graphic novels do you read you know (laughs) what are you thinking of what are the things you think about what what are the thoughts you can't say out loud in school because people actually like beat the shit out of you for wanting to be a smart thoughtful person we can all get in the same room together and the music's the excuse and the spiky hair and and the and the crazy outfits i almost think of that side of it back then where I go, Oh, that's in the same way that like a butterfly will be all crazy bright colored to say like, I'm fucking poisonous. Don't eat me. Don't even come near me. That was what we were doing. And I didn't even realize it back then. It was like, I'm going to look crazy. So you fucking leave me alone. And then when I get around the other crazy looking people, we can all turn around and be like, you guys watch kids in the hall. It's fucking awesome. You know, (laughs) Anybody want to talk about nerdy, weird, you really, you guys play Dungeons and Dragons? Like, am I allowed to say that here and not get punched in the fucking face? Like, it's kind of what it felt like back then. It was like a safe haven of thoughtful people who were pretending to be tough and scary.
2: So let's talk a little bit about your history with um, Scott and shows. I know you, you've talked before about seeing Less Than Jake in your friend's backyard, I think, before, yeah. like on their first maybe tour.
1: Yeah, so I, I mentioned the first show I ever went to, my brother took me to see four Jersey punk bands in a basement. Yeah. In a uh, of, of church on Pleasant Valley Way in West Orange, New Jersey. Do you remember the names of any of those bands? Felix Frump, Missing Children, and One Nature. Uh, the other one is Lost to Time. I can I've never been able to remember it. And I think I saw the flyer once and I was like, "Oh, I don't I don't even remember them." But those other three bands left a big impression on me. Uh, and then the second show uh, My friend Nick Bonaduce, who is another, to this day, co hosts the Jersey podcast with me. Like These are lifelong friends because of these experiences. So Mike ran a fanzine. My brother used to write articles for it. I used to read it, think it was so cool. Got us a little notoriety. There were some local record stores in Montclair that were like, you could go drop your fanzine off, pick up other local kids' fanzines, get records, get seven inches, find out where the shows were. What was the fanzine's name? His fanzine, the the one my friend was known for was called Marsha um and then another friend of mine ran one called life in a bungalow it was Marsha because he had a crush on marcia brady sure of course the cover was usually a picture of Marsha brady um so then bonaduce was mike's best friend and bonaduce is more into like Oi! and and hardcore um stuff like that so he was having a july 4th barbecue and it was felix frump thirsty the lavalinas these were all very hyper local jersey bands and then this was in those days when A thing that would seem crazy now, which you remember show flyers back then, it was just like, hey, if you need directions, call Kirsten, here's my number. And it was just my friend Kirsten was the directions person. And you'd call her actual house. That's insane. And um, she got a call that was like, hey, so sorry to bug you. We're from Florida. Um, We had a show in Jersey that day. It fell through and somebody told us you're throwing a barbecue. Like, we'd love to play it if we could stop by. And it was fucking less than Jake. And I mean, this was when Jessica was still in the band. Like, this was... Early And they came and it was just like, whoa, like all these local bands. It was fun. You know, it was like five bucks for if you bring a potluck item for the barbecue. And uh, we're watching all the local bands. And all of a sudden we're seeing like less than Jake and their formative emerging from, you know, whatever was happening in Florida. This was like their first venturing out into the world. And it was incredible. We all flipped out. It was the first time I'd heard ska punk. Wow. Growing up in the 80s like you'd hear, you know, sometimes Madness or The Specials would come on MTV, that would kind of be in the sphere, you know, 120 minutes or whatever. Um but it hadn't in my mind those were like weird British things and I didn't quite know why they had horns and this was the first time where I was like, "Oh, this is a thing." And I was so young. I have this distinct memory. I bought the I wish I still had this. I mean, I could probably fucking sell it on eBay. It was a tape that was a bunch of the Pezcore songs before Pezcore came out. It was just, uh, it was like a, it just had a red label that they clearly printed out somewhere, like somewhere between a demo and a release, you know? Um, And I bought their tape. It had, you know, Shotgun, Johnny Quest, Wish I Had My Own Flag, all those early ones that we all love. And I used to listen to the tape constantly, but I was so little, I remember having my Walkman on and listening to that tape Because when I was young, I was really, really, I had a real phobia about uh, needles, like getting shots and vaccines and stuff. And I was at my pediatrician's office. I was still seeing my childhood pediatrician. And I was listening to Less Than Jake with my eyes closed. (laughs) And I was like, just do the shot. Don't tell me when it's coming. I mean, that's how little I was when I was at the show, is that my parents had not, I hadn't switched from going to my pediatrician. I was in middle school. (laughs) I saw Less Than Jake. And then um, I'd gotten really into fanzines. And looking back into it, I realized, because fanzines were like the humor part of punk rock back then. You there was a local band called Weston, a pop punk band. I love them because they would always like tell jokes and banter in between their songs and fuck around. And I like that. And fanzines could be really funny. And there were a bunch of fanzines I had gotten into, and I was in that rhythm of just like send send somebody your address. They'll send you some stuff. And less than Jake, I bought their tape, and I loved it, and I wrote to them. I wrote them a letter and signed up for their mailing list. And anybody who was a fan of theirs in those early days will tell you one of the things that was brilliant. They were better than anybody. Being on their mailing list, it was nuts because like sometimes you just get a CD, like that CD that had the remix of Dope Man on it, just showed up at my house one day. And it was like, thanks for being on our mailing list. I don't know how those guys were able to fund all the postage and like they must have had some scam going to print that shit up for, for cheap. But I got that and then because of them, um, I learned about Dill Records, which was, I know, I know I, I've looked up enough to know that you guys love a good Mike Park reference on the show. <laughs> Let's hear your Mike Park story. But yeah, I mean, this was, this was a uh, pre-Asian men. This is when it was still Dill.
2: Yeah. Skank and Pickles, bent. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And he had the, uh, Misfits of Scott comp. Mm-hmm. So I ordered that less than Jake. I ordered, I think maybe when Pescore came out, he first put it out. If I'm remembering right. Yeah. Yeah. So I ordered that and Misfits of Ska at the same time. So it was very much, I mean, I I was very much a punk kid, J Church, Jawbreaker, Screeching Weasel, all that wing of stuff, you know, and then a lot of local stuff as well, Bouncing Souls. But then also, Less Than Jake was huge for me from when I was 13, 14, 15 years old. And then on top of it, through Misfits of Ska, I was a young kid and I saw skank and pickle when they came through and played the wetlands in New York. Um, I did a, I did a summer school program at Georgetown one year, like a debate. There was a debate club I was a part of. And I got into the. They had like a, you could apply to be in a summer school at Georgetown and slapstick played in the lobby of, uh, Mm. the dorm. I was staying in slapstick fucking played in that song. Nate B is on the Misfits of Ska comp. And I'll also say Nate B, that's one of the best songs. I feel like this song has flown under the radar. Nate B by Slapstick. That's just a great fucking song. So I saw, I, I love Slapstick and Mustard Plug, um, a bunch of the bands on that comp. Uh, Mustard Plug wasn't on that comp, but then my older brother saw that I was getting into the Ska stuff and he made me a mixtape that had like Mustard Plug. Mr. Smiley was on there, great song. Had like MU-330 uh just a bunch of great bands and then yeah started getting into it and I remember in high school uh played Montclair State University and they I went and I, I was a young kid by the standards of the scene I was I was young no matter how you sliced it and I looked even younger than I was like <laughs> people will see pictures of me from my junior senior year of high school and routinely guess that I am literally <laughs> 10 years old I was such a late bloomer I went through puberty so late it was tragic and Mephiscopheles, uh, I'll never forget the guy, I think Damien, right? was the lead singer's name. He like grabbed me and pulled me on stage. Cause he just saw a little kid in the crowd. And I was up there like spazzing out and dancing around and they, uh, he shoved a mic in my face and he started going, hell Satan. <laughs> and I'm like a young, like 15 year old Irish Catholic kid still growing out of it, just going like, Oh, hell Satan. Like "Hail <laughs> Satan. And then they launched into Bumblebee tuna. And I sang along to Bumblebee tuna on stage with Mephiscopheles. So, I cannot claim to be a ska aficionado. Um, never was. It was always a piece of the greater punk hole to me. Right. But I also feel like there might be people who are diehards listening to this podcast going like, I wish I was at a less than Jake backyard barbecue. I wish I was seeing Mephiscopheles fucking pull me up on stage with 40 other people in the room at some small show. So yeah, I saw a lot of
2: cool stuff along the way. The thing is that the these bands before ska got like mainstreamed in like 96, 97, these ska punk bands and the punk bands just were like intermingled so much that if you weren't a ska kid, if you were a punk kid, you saw them. That was just how it it was back
1: then. It was like I said, it was not unusual to go to a show in Jersey for me. If it was a local show, you know, being as close as I was to New York, you also had the whole moon ska influence. Mm -hmm. So that was like a, it was easy to access that. And, I remember like, my local zoo was in trouble and it was going to shut down the Turtleback Zoo in West Orange, New Jersey. And I'm sure you can find records of this show. Some friends of mine organized a Save the Zoo show. And then we somehow found out that one of the guys from the toasters was a big <laughs> fan of that zoo. Like, I think he had a kid at the time and maybe lived in North Jersey and used to take his kid to the zoo. And he's like, we'll play your show to save the fucking zoo. So the Moonscot thing was also kind of a, you had all the stuff that was more punky and that fit right into being on a bill with other Jersey bands. Then moon Sky was also this kind of separate thing that was big enough that it was a scene supporting itself and unto itself, but it was not unusual to go. Oh, I want to go to the show. Cause this pop punk band I'm playing is, uh, is I like his playing, but, there's also like a ska band and two hardcore bands. And then I'd be like on the pop punk and ska punk side of things, just praying that the hardcore guys didn't beat the shit out of me. You know, <laughs> that it didn't get too violent with all these weirdos and hoodies. Um, this guy, Bergen County youth crew, these assholes. So yeah, it was, it was all, I miss it. I remember when it split. When, when was that? Probably around when like No Doubt and Sublime really exploded in an MTV way. Yeah. Right. Like, I think I'm sure there's people who have researched it more, but that's when it probably felt like, I mean, between Green Day exploding, Rancid exploding, Punk in general exploding, and then No Doubt, Sublime, you know, even being a Less Than Jake fan, you look at it and it's like, wow, I saw them when I was in seventh or eighth grade in a backyard and then my sophomore year at college, I saw them open up for Method Man and Redman at Rutgers Fest. Like Jeez. that's that's a crazy progression in five years, you know, um, so you could see it explode um, and everything got big enough and shows were attracting enough people. That just simple math, it's like all the punk bands can go be on one night and the hardcore bands can all team up at another venue two towns over and there can be a ska show two towns over from that. And there's enough people to want to go see all those things that they don't need to team up anymore. And that was both a reflection that things were going really well and that it had gotten popular and exciting, but it was also kind of a shame in a way because, you know, I, I was just some fucking knucklehead kid whose older brother had good taste. So I liked that I used to get to show up places and be like, oh, I'm going to see five things and they're all going to be really different from each other. And I'll get to kind of figure out who I am and what my interests are because of that. So I, I, I really liked it before it fragmented. And I don't want to sound like an old guy, but just to say, I feel really lucky that I was so young to be a part of it when it was small enough that like you couldn't support three different shows in a night in North Jersey. Like y'all had to team up and do one show if you wanted a crowd. And that was cool.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I miss those days too. And uh, I think things things went a direction after where it had to go back to that, where scenes had to sort of work together again because there were, just wasn't the support. After these things left mainstream, they kind of had to go back to that. And I, I think that's a good thing for a scene because, I mean, just just in terms of like not wanting to hear the same band four times in a row, I think it's also good to just be around people that are not exactly the same as you and like to consider them
1: part of your community too. Absolutely. And it's, it's very, I mean, it's, I don't want to put him on too much of a pedestal cause he's just a legitimate friend of mine. Like a guy who we've leaned on each other over the years, but you see one of the very like Jeff Rosenstock kind of being, um, I think one of the, the sense I get is that a lot of this new generation point to him as someone who influenced them. Mm-hmm, uh, definitely. And then you listen to his albums and you go, Oh, and it's what I'm describing. Cause he's, I think same age as me or very close, but his albums now reflect how we grew up. Right. Where it's like, Oh, here's a track where this song sounds like Weezer. This next song is a fucking hardcore. This song is like youth of today. This next song, like, starts off sounding like youth of today and then there's a ska breakdown in the middle and then after the breakdown it doesn't go back to being youth of today now all of a sudden it sounds like guided by voices like what the fuck is going on (laughs) um but i think that it's a good lesson in like the way that that scene started then fragmented that came back together the music itself has kind of smashed together in a way that's very interesting as well Mm -hmm. that's one of the things i I would love your guys opinion on what's that i don't want to I don't want to get divisive on a Ska podcast, but I go, is the fact that this is the new wave of Ska blowing up to a point where it's starting to fragment again? And is that, is that good or bad?
0: No, I don't think it will. And a big part of that, I think is that within Ska, there's like so much openness to experimenting with the genre and bringing different things to it now that, I mean, just within our own scene, you have bands that sound completely disparate. So, almost now when you have just a ska show, it sounds like a show back in the day because you have like an electronic act and a hardcore sounding act and a more like skate punk sounding act and then a more traditional ska sounding act. Um, so it's like everybody's kind of bringing everything to the table now. And so it feels a, a lot like those shows 20 years ago. When, when well, you know, from the outside perspective, it might just be, oh, that's just
1: a ska show, but it's a lot more than that. That's cool. Well, so it sounds like it's now a scene that's like the jokes are over and people are, people are owning it and saying like, yeah, hey, we're not going to, we like it almost like New Jersey. Right. Like right. that's one of the, it's, it's funny. I got it to say I'm 42. I'm a 42 year old father. So when I started here and like Scott, my wife, my wife who is a musician herself and been in a bunch of, you know, the unlovables, great pop punk band, she's got her finger on the pulse. She's like, you know, Scott is back. This was a couple of years, like two, three years ago. She's like, you know, ska's like becoming the hip shit again. I was like, man, that's funny. I had no idea. Never thought I'd see the day. Like, it's, it's just the thing people have been rolling their eyes at, right? But it's almost like I was saying about Jersey before. I think a lot of, I think if you're going like, I'm going to start a ska band in the mid-2010s, you know, late-2010s, <laughs> like, fuck you. I better own it hard. And it's similar to what I was saying about Jersey before. Um, and I really... I really like it. I really respect it. I don't know if it's something that I can lock in on as a forty-two-year-old, um, but I have great, great respect for the the passion behind it and the creativity behind it. And to hear that people are now defining what constitutes being accepted in a ska show in a way that smashes together different genres and allows for that is very, very cool.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of the the, the quote-unquote new bands have been around a little while. Like even Cat Bite, Cat Bite's a relatively new band, but Tim. Was in a band for quite a while before that, called the Snails. And so he was in this period of time, and a lot of the bands that are like kind of gaining popularity now were, yeah, like you said, they're starting ska bands in the 2010s, and it's like, why are you starting a ska band in the 2010s? Because you love it so much, and you don't care that everyone else makes fun of it. So you have that you have that going into it. and so a lot of these bands come from that.
1: Absolutely. Although if I can call one thing out, please. Here's what I don't want. I am sure that there is some ska Twitter or Reddit verse that's very passionate. There is some place where ska people gather, and I don't need them mad at me. So please take this for what it's (laughs) worth. The last thing I need is to enrage some sort of online ska community. I've gotten online communities mad at me before. It's never fun. I'll say this. It's like ska was a thing that had become joked about. And it was a thing Mm -hmm. that, like, right. Yeah. I think people my brother's age, people a few years older than me, they're kind of responsible because they liked punk and then ska came along. But then they all found like archers of loaf and pavement. And then they all decided we have to make fun of the fact that we were liking this goofier thing three or four years ago. It's my brother, it's that Gen X cynicism that needed to undercut their prior passion. Yeah. I will say, I understand that it can be a rallying cry. To be like, we were the genre that's made fun of, and we're not gonna, we're gonna fucking start making stuff that's so cool, no one will make fun of it anymore. I love that. I'm into it, it needs to happen. I will say, there have been times where I've seen videos out there of people in the scene who really lean into that, where there's almost this sense of like, ska is a persecuted culture. And I just have to say that as someone who's always been on the fringes of it, who it was an influence in my musical upbringing, my DIY upbringing, it doesn't always play great (laughs) to hear people be like, we get persecuted for being ska. It's like, you got made fun of, you did. But we're also living in an era where there are people being persecuted to the point of being like killed in the streets for who they are. Yeah, And I do think we maybe need to... Be very mindful of that in how we phrase ska persecution because it's certainly there is certainly has to be a chip on the shoulder, I think, for ska bands. We're like, you spent 15 years fucking making fun of us. It's fun music, we don't want to apologize for it. There's also something we said for like, yes, but I don't want to watch a video where it seems like maybe part of a marketing thing is like fighting back against the the anti sca forces where it's like (laughs) I mean cops kill people like there, you know there's there's people who really can't feel safe in their skin and I don't I think we need to also maybe just take a breath and let that be accurately gauged if that makes sense that's maybe the one thing of constructive criticism I've noticed as a crusty old guy on the fringe of all this is like it's real you got made fun of for a long time but the consequences of that are not life or death and you need you need to maybe there's times where i go i can't i can't totally respect this person putting the thing out because it feels a little tone deaf to claim that um you know that a genre of music's persecution deserves as much anger in this video as other people. So, just some thoughts, some food for thought. There,
2: <laughs> I agree with you. I'm I'm of your brother's age. Uh, I didn't feel like I ever was ever personally made fun of. I think actually, what attracted me to writing my book, defending Scott, and then this podcast was more just like to to sort of like was push on culture and be like. This this idea that ska was bad music that people made fun of, like that was really just a point in time. Like that's not how we felt about ska before that. And that's not how we felt about it after. It's just like the larger culture sort of latched onto this idea of it. And it's sort of hard to shake that. Like there's so much more to ska than this like couple period year of it being like goofy mainstream music. So I agree with you. I don't think ska is a persecuted thing. I just more it's more about like. Um, just challenging, challenging the culture's idea of it. I think is, is uh, where I'm coming from.
0: It's really just saying that it's as legitimate as every other genre.
1: I also want to say, I'm not referring to the name of this podcast. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> no. defensive. Ska I, sounds like a thing I might be, but there's probably people out there going, I think he's probably talking about these TikToks I've seen too, where it's like, we've all seen it where it's like, it's, and it's a rallying point and it'll get people in the room and it'll get them yeah. to be at your shows. And it's fucking cool. And you're not wrong and people should be, but there's a tipping point at which you go, it's, you know what it is? It's, it's not, and it's not even a criticism. It's almost a caution of like, that's how you're going to get the snake to eat its own tail. Yeah. If you know what I mean, that's going to make people go, well, let's not start taking it too seriously. It just got fun again. You know what I mean? Yeah. I
2: think, I think what I'm saying, cause I'm agreeing with you. Cause I, I see it too. I see like, it's almost like taking it a little too far. And it's. I think that that gets an insular culture. Like where we start out going like, it sucks that everyone like, doesn't understand that ska is actually cool. And then you kind of go back and forth and back and forth to a point where you're like, you forget what it's like to even be on the outside. Like mm-hmm. you get just so inside your own bubble of like grievances that you build it up. So I do think that's like a um, natural thing to be wary of in, inside any culture that has any sort of element that people make fun of.
1: Absolutely. I love what you were saying too, about like, let's take a step back and actually look at the history. Cause it's like people, ne- people weren't making fun of the specials mm-hmm. and people weren't yeah. making fun of Op Ivy. People weren't making fun of Rancid who, you know, they were a punk band, but you felt their past as a ska band within it. It was a very, very specific slice of that ska punk that, you know, all of us who were around for it saw it. Like, it just got very MTVified. And it's like, oh, it goes from this underground thing to like, now all of a sudden, here's somebody at the MTV movie awards with like sunglasses that are four feet wider than their face <laughs> and a big and you're going, oh, but that's every type of music gets like blown out by yeah publicists and stylists and people who co opt it. And that's what got just unfortunately so culturally in the spotlight that it pushed past a tipping point where everyone started making fun of it. But there were always there was always cool shit in there and always cool people in there um and if i may there's another story i was hoping to tell that's kind of the Please. counterpoint of like a conversation that meant so much to me um that's like i think the opposite of what i just said about like for any cautionary thing that i bring up it's all just out of love of people being creative and being so impressed that people are being creative with it I, so i had you know most of my career i would say was built off of the fact that i did this public access tv show and that was kind of you know i had been catching a little momentum in the entertainment industry and it was coming and going and i was not i didn't like waiting around i didn't like having to like fit into boxes that i was like i'm fighting real hard for jobs that are not my thing anyway so i went and made my own diy thing and we had on all these fucking cool bands and all this great shit happened and it was very underground and it kind of became a It became a place where like, if you were playing the New York DIY spots, we were the TV show. You had your own TV show now too. Like if you were playing death by audio and Shea stadium, you could also, we had a fucking TV show for you too. It was cool (laughs) to feel a part of it. Um, But we went to cable and I knew we were selling out a little bit. I actually called Jeff and I was like, how do I do this correctly? Like, how do I do this? And he and I had a long talk and I knew it was, changing and i knew it was shifting but i was like we're going to sell out the right way and i tried to keep the heart in it and i fought for a lot of stuff that felt important to me but then i remembered along the way realizing there there was this group of fans that had been really at the core of the fan base of that show on public access and someone was like hey you should check out this one person's twitter there's something going on and it became clear to me oh there's this whole group that was really young when they found our show and now they were all making fun of it and when it got canceled they were all like Celebrating the cancellation on the day we announced it. And it killed me. And then I was very emotional. And I foolishly was like, Hey, why you guys you're dancing on the grave of this? And I was trying to defend myself. And they were like, fuck this, like, and it, it was just a sad thing because I was much older than them. And I'm like trying to be like, Wait, why this is hurting? Like, this is a bad day. And and then people had to be like, dude, don't go on Twitter when you're emotional. Deal with this later. And then Blah, blah, blah. Point being, this fan base that meant so much to me with my show, I found out they were all rolling their eyes at it and like making fun of it and kind of glad that it died and it killed me inside. And it fucked with me more than anybody knows. Like, I think there were some people in the fan base who caught wind of this. And, but I don't think people realize it. It really rattled me because in my mind, I'm like, I'm making this for these kids, right? These kids who have always supported me. I'm making it for them. And then my wife, who's wiser than I and a punk rocker herself, who's, who's, you know, seen everything. She at one point says to me, she's like, so when these kids found the show, they were like 14 or 15. And I go, yeah. She goes, what was your favorite band when you were 14? I go less than Jake. I mean, I saw less than Jake play the pipeline in Newark on my 15th birthday. I wore a Pez shirt. Roger called me a poser, you know, like (laughs) I saw them on my 15th birthday. Like I'm like, less than Jake was my favorite band when I was 14. She goes, what were you saying about less than Jake when you were 25? I go, I was kind of making fun of him just like everybody else. And she goes, and what were you thinking about less than Jake when you were 35? And I go, I don't put on Pezcore, but if fucking Mike Sinkovich comes on my shuffle, I sing along every word and I probably put on Pezcore after that. Or I put on the fucking, you know, Losers Whichever one has Econolodge, I forget the name of that long ass singles comp. And I was like, and that music is catchy and it's good. And it reminds me of what it was like to be young and excited. And I get fucking psyched. Like, it's not the first thing I put on. But if it comes on shuffle, I am thrilled and I seek more of it out. And she's like, that's what our TV show is going to be for these kids. It was this goofy, weird thing they found that made them feel seen and understood. And then it lasted long enough and they got old enough and everybody feels insecure about who you were when you were 14. So you kind of have to make fun of yourself when you're 14. And how do you do that? You make fun of the stuff you were into. You roll your eyes at your own interests to shed who you were when you were like pimple-faced and had braces. She's like, but 10 years from now, they're going to put those videos on YouTube and they're going to go, oh. When I was young, I was involved in something special. That's what it is. This is their less than Jake. And I was like, and it's funny because less than Jake played my TV show. One of the things I got to do was when we had the money to book musical acts, I got the urge to reunite on my show. Adam (laughs) and his package played. I got Adam and his package on TV in 2017. Cool Keith, who's a rapper that I loved growing up. Total weirdo. We had him on. Got less than Jake on. And it was like my my bullet point list of a lot of my favorite bands from when I was young. And I got to sit and talk with Les and Jake and tell them about being at that barbecue. And I got to tell them that story. And, uh, they were so nice about it and it meant so much to me that they were there. And, uh, the journey of ska from the nineties until now, it's actually something that has been held up to me as an allegory for how some of my fans who had to walk away It taught me how to not take it personally on my end. And I thought that might be a story that would be worth sharing on a ska themed podcast. Absolutely. I want to talk about one
2: particular moment on your show. By the way, I love your show. Thanks. I don't remember when I caught it, but I remember catching it once. And I don't think I was even aware of you before. So I just came into a cold. And I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like the amount that you just allowed, maybe encouraged chaos. Go just run with the dumbest ideas to the point where they're brilliant ideas.
1: Talking about eat more butts. We're talking about eat more butts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's sound, it. Sounds like you're describing eat more butts. Okay, yeah. so
2: this well, I'm going to argue that this is one of the greatest moments on TV. Yeah,
1: I would, I would say the same. Actually. Okay, so okay,
2: so you you start the show. Jeff Rosenstock is your musical guest. Yeah. Um, well, now what happens? It just sounds to me, watching it, it just looks like the audience decides. To just start chanting, eat more butts.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> so there's a few factors. So this was post-bomb the music industry.
2: Yeah. It's right, right kind of the beginning of his solo career. We sort of like. Right. Be- this is before his even first official solo album.
1: Yeah. This is when I think Jeff was doing some soul searching and finding his footing. And Laura Stevenson had played my show. And Laura and I hit it off. And Laura was like, you and Jeff got to talk. She's like, you and Jeff think the same way. Like you're, you just are both kind of like, you have anger, but you're not angry about it. Like you you and Jeff would be fast friends. So Jeff played the show and we met, we realized we lived in the same neighborhood. We would get lunches. And this was at a time where I think it was, I think he, you know, none of us, like I saw Jeff open for gaslight the other night on a rooftop in Manhattan, thousands of people. Like there was a stretch where he did not know that was going to happen. He was like, it bomb is done and maybe that's it for me you know and this was in that stretch where he was finding his footing and and, and the momentum was just getting started so got to keep that in mind i had just put out was it my comedy central half hour huh. i think it was or was it my album i had i had just put out some stand-up thing where i talked about a situation where <laughs> I had been in a relationship, a committed relationship for eight years. And then I wasn't. And I was in New York City and I was like C-level famous. I was comedy scene New York famous. So I could like go around Brooklyn and people were like, oh, dude, I've seen you at shows. Oh, you've been on Broad City. And all of a sudden I was like dating for the first time and it was exciting, but it was crazy. And I, I wound up in a situation where I was I was with a young lady and she encouraged me. To eat butt for the first time, and this was many, many years ago. And and you know, eating butt was like an internet meme for a while. I can say I predated it by a year or two, um, where I had this joke about like I ate ass, and I don't think it should be stigmatized. I think I think this is when my first album came out. I think this is a joke. I also have a joke about less than Jake on that album. Um, and for some reason, the crowd, you know, they were all very supportive of me. Then they got the album, and when the next Wednesday came after it came out. They had all listened to the album and a few of them had said, we're chanting, eat more butts. So it was a reference to a joke I had just put out. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And now Jeff, I think that was his second time playing the show. So he, the first time he played it, he was like, like my goal with making the public access show was like, what's the show me and my brother would have wanted to watch in our basement when we were like kids getting bullied in middle school. What's that show? And then I think Jeff is a person who watched it went, oh, they also made the show I would have wanted when I was in middle school and high school. And we were lucky with that. So Jeff got it. He understood the show. So, yeah, they're chanting eat more butts. Everybody saw me react of like, oh, no, I got to start the show and then just wouldn't let me. But I think everybody (laughs) also saw like I had a glint in my eye where if you know me, I think people were like, he doesn't care. (laughs) <laughs> like he understands that it's the longer this takes, the funnier it gets. And then I'll never forget just looking across the room. And Jeff was sitting in his chair in a way that was like, um, like an athlete. Like if you're watching a basketball game and you see an athlete who's on the bench, who's just like ready for the next time out. Cause he's going to jump off the fucking bench and get in as soon as the coach waves him on. He had that energy, like edge of his seat, like staring at me, wanting to make eye contact. And as soon as I made eye contact with him, he just kind of slowly nodded and i smirked and nodded back and he just motioned to john and i think tim was playing drums that night he motioned to all the guys playing with him of just come on and they all just quietly crept over to their instruments and got ready by the band area so i knew all the cameras were on me still and everybody's chanting eat more butts but the whole studio audience can see oh shit they're grabbing guitars and then jeff just hits a fucking power chord that was like walking up to a california wildfire and like spraying a fucking whole gasoline truck worth of gas onto it <laughs> on top of it. He just set it off of just, oh, this is already, this is like 8.5 chaos on the Richter scale. Let's send it to 13 with some musical accompaniment. <laughs> yeah. And it was great. And I loved it. And I felt very connected to him as an artist and to the audience in the room on having redefined what the show would be that night. And I miss that feeling desperately, but I'm old now and you can't stay young forever.
2: (laughs) The thing thing about that show, aside from it being good TV, is that when Jeff transitions to playing like one of his actual songs, uh, you know, in the in that first 15 minutes, I think he plays Teenager. And the audience is just now they're now they're just watching a show. Right. Yeah. But they're having so much fun. Like if 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 you had just said, "Here's Jeff. He's going to play Teenager for you. Go over and watch him." They would have not had even close to the level of fun they had with everything that led up to what that to that song. They just everything everything shed away from them. Like they were pure in the moment. They're pure joy. And so when he played a song, it was like all the joy, all the all the being in the moment and that in that song.
1: You have to realize too, like one of the cool things about this crossover was as more diy bands were playing our show like some of their audience started to become ours and they would show up and conversely our audience that was comedy nerds a lot of them having been like kids who hung out at the ucb theater a lot all of us sudden started realizing oh there's this music that's analogous to what we're doing so a lot of our fans also knew jeff and knew every word to his songs then so it was like not only did he drop into the chaos that night almost like a surfer dropping onto a wave but then when he starts his song like a decent percentage of the audience has seen him live before and knows that song and is ready to go yeah and it's you know what a shocking revelation to come on the Ska podcast and say that jeff rose is that pretty brilliant guy <laughs>
2: Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at Patreon.com backslash of ska. You will get monthly bonus episodes, extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the indefensive ska Discord. Indefensive ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Skapunk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific, indefensive ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of The Bands I Like Only Charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And on that note, we leave you by saying, Ska now more
0: Didn't than hey everybody it's barry from the what podcast hey it's russ hey it's brian and we are giving away two tickets to bonnaroo 2024 these are ga plus and they include camping russ how'd people get qualified
2: we want to hear your top artists to play on the bonnaroo 2024 lineup Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.